Hey everyone, welcome to the Film and Games podcast. This is Jennifer Javornik. I'm so excited this week to be at the Social Innovation Summit, where I'm interviewing a ton of people who are doing cool things to make the world a better place. Uh, I have a really exciting guest today because of all the people I'm talking to this week, you are the only person who's actually in a re- in my field or related field. So why don't you introduce yourself? Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, my name is Julian Fitzgerald, co-founder and executive director of Gaming Community Co., formerly known as Community. Tell me all about it. Yeah, so of course, uh, community is focused on increasing diversity and equity within the gaming and esports ecosystem. Uh, one thing that really drove us to start in this organization, both myself and co- my co-founder, Ryan Johnson, uh, he was someone who could have went to the pro pathway within gaming. And you know, myself, I was hooking up computers and was a junior IT professional at 12 and didn't know that that was a pathway as well. For us, it was really understanding the exposure was a missing element in regards to having that then kind of mindset in regards to next steps or stepping stones to use or leverage to progress within a certain space or discipline. So community focus on first being able to provide access and awareness to various underserved communities. Primarily, we started off in the collegiate ecosystem with our HBCUs, but we've also branched and kind of gone in both directions from traditional K-12 ecosystems, a younger demographic, as well as postgraduate understanding. That is really the pivotal time that people are looking and employment is the, the name of the game, if you will. So our organization, of course, started in 2020, late 2019. Uh, great timing. Yeah, great timing <laughs> indeed, absolutely. We went full-time in February of 2020, so it was kind of crazy. Um, in that regard, though, we actually held our first fundraiser in May, which was great, uh, May of 2020, alongside of, um, this was at the time, Nook, so that was Intel. Uh, for their Intel Nook, we actually raised for the digital learning, or excuse me, the mandated uh, distance learning. Uh, we realized many students and some, some schools even didn't have resources to support that. So that's where we started, raised over $100,000 in 24 hours, donated laptops, and continued to go from there uh, to build out our HBCU Esports League that focuses on, again, giving our students and schools the opportunity to engage in a high-fidelity esports environment. Um, oh, that's cool. That must be one of the things you do. Like, lay, yeah. lay out for everyone listening, like, all the different initiatives that you've got going, just yeah. so we know what we're listening to here. Absolutely. And I think even just to that point in regards to esports, looking at where and why the gap or the divide exists in the first place, that will allow me to really, if you will, uh, articulate all the elements that we have, is esports itself, which started off in a traditional PC gaming environment, um, and that's early or early 2000s, late 90s, you know, the PCs at that time were robust enough to start, you know, to actually, you know, support gameplay, but they themselves were more costly to be able to do so. And so starting from that touch point in 2000s, uh, esports ecosystem was really only built on those who were able to, you know, have the actual resources, the, the PC, the needed bandwidth or internet to support that type of gameplay. And so really looking at the different communities that don't have access to that. That's another reason why the the X in our name is there as well, of first identifying the X is the only button that's on all different controllers and consoles, including the PC. And we that's meant to be an inclusive element uh, or kind of a introduction to different gamers of different backgrounds. And so with that, we recognized, well, this is the orig- initial reason that there is a divide, and that's access to both the technology and then awareness of the opportunities that can be explored. So our first piece in 2020 was really kicking off not just the HBCU Esports League, but simultaneously 
our esports readiness programs that allow for really that awareness to be uh, catalyzed by leveraging the young people's interest to teach them the different backgrounds that go into what they love, which is called gaming. So the esports league is one. We have our esports readiness program as well that focuses primarily from eighth grade to about uh, collegiate postgraduate, depending on their their age range. We have different levels or proficient or different proficiency levels that we will, you know, kind of challenge or prompt them with as well. Uh, outside of that, we also... Does the readiness program focus on developing players or all the support systems around esports? Great question. Actually, it's the support systems around esports. So that's something that sometimes our young people are like, are we playing? It's like there will be gameplay elements, but really it's about understanding the ecosystem at large that contributes towards gaming and esports. So what are some of those roles or competencies that you need to have to support esports? Yeah. So, oh man, so many different, different ones. Um, really starting off from where the industry itself is created, game development, right? So being able to both develop and design games is a critical, you know, technical skill set that is pivotal in this space. And so that's something that we use as a starting place. But then there's also a number of other skills from a technical and more soft skills that are needed. If you look at gaming as entertainment in and of itself, right? So gaming, of course, is a subsector of the entertainment industry. And so when you think about it like that, you have the place where the art itself is synthesized or created. That's with the developer. That's with the designer. But then you also think through just similar to music. There's a number of different processes after you create the art to get it out to the people, to get it to concerts, to get it. You know, so there's a distribution element. There's marketing uh, when it comes to live events, which is esports. There's a lot of project management and event management that is almost uh, a non-negotiable to be able to execute some of those elements. And then, of course, a big part of gaming is data science. So there's a large piece of, if you will, uh, kind of a statistical element that goes into this as well. Cool. Yeah. So, Pete, you, I always say that uh, video games are the gateway drug to a STEM education. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> uh, just because I think it's so tangible for for youth. It's something that's in their world every day. Mm. So it's like, you can make a career out of this. Yeah. And there's actually like 35 careers you can go into <laughs> around esports. Yeah, big time. You know? Yeah, and that's just esports, which, again, is only a subsector of the larger gaming ecosystem. You know, game, you may know, but most people aren't aware gaming is bigger than music and film combined from a revenue perspective. Yep. And so that's, again, another driving piece of how we both engage our young people, but then also the kind of outcomes we want them to uh, go through this programming with of you can stay within this space or absolutely start to look at and lean on transferable skills that you're you know, ultimately gaining through this process as well. We're going to get through all of your offerings. We're going to come back to that. I'm going to pin that. Sure. But I want to ask you now, because we're talking about this, why do you think the video game has surpassed, video game industry has surpassed music and entertainment? What do you think it is about games? That's a great question. That hooks people. Like, what is it? Why? Why now? Okay. Why and why now? Those are great questions. I love because I often think through that lens of why this, why now, but gaming itself is one Let's think about the user feedback that is created within that art medium. You know, music is great. Um, dance is great. I, I think that might be a good example as well. But when it comes to gaming, you have the ability to directly uh, impact the outcome of whatever you're playing or interacting with, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's the most interactive entertainment medium there is. And just to that point as well, a lot of games are agnostic from a perspective of, especially in modern day, you know, 
I heard someone even say, as long as you have two thumbs, you can play games. Actually, nowadays, you don't even need that. You know, so <laughs> true, there's, true. there's just so many different ways to make gaming accessible to different people of different backgrounds and even cultures. And so the language barrier is often the primary thing that prevents art from transcending different environments or cultures. And that doesn't exist within gaming because of the, again, the experience that you're really uh, putting your end user through. That's the culture that you want them to adopt. And I think it was said well by a colleague of mine earlier on the panel of we're not creating games, we're creating culture. Mm -hmm. And with that as well, just looking at there's, I would just say a myriad of like outcomes that come from engaging in this space as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I always think like, um, you know, there's so many mediums, entertainment mediums that are passive. Mm -hmm. Like you watch TV, you're sitting and you're watching a move, watch a movie, Mm -hmm. consume a video, read some text, take in art, like see a dance performance. They're all like you are witnessing someone else's Mm self-expression where video games allow you to be self-expressed. It allows you to be the creator and kind of tell, tell your story. Some games are more open world that you can you know, that really stretches the creativity bar really far. And some are more linear that you're just trying to get to the end. But, um, and I think that kind of coincides with the world and the younger generation. Like, um, they're not, they just don't want to sit and be told everything. They want to go out there and experience and do. And I think games are a great medium for that. Absolutely. And, and think through even some other mediums, maybe like a Netflix series you may have watched where they give you the option to choose the next part of the story. Yeah. Gamification is the answer to your first question in regards to why is it this such a distinguished uh, entertainment medium from others. Thinking through human psychology, just just understanding, you know, gamification nowadays has been embedded into our work environment, right? The little bells and updates. Anytime you hear that feedback of clicking something, that is a gamified process. And so, a hundred percent, that is something that it was that games have been rooted in. And so I think that's a piece that we often don't realize psych- the the psychology that's been embedded in games really since its inception. Right. No, I totally agree with that. Okay, back to the programming. Sure. So we heard about two. We heard about the HBCU esports play, yep. and then the readiness, which is more about everything that goes into esports as an industry yep. and exposing kids to different careers. Both awesome. What else? Yeah. So we also have our ambassador program or our community ambassador, of course. Uh, you know, kind of leveraging our name in a funny way. But our community ambassador program focuses on building our young people, our students, and their ability to really take on the the leadership roles that we know are needed to actually grow and sustain these programs, both at campus or on campus, as well as within their local communities. And this is pivotal because those are the primary roles or types of skill sets that are sought after by corporate companies as well. Sure. So our ambassador program is focused much more on the tangible outcomes that are uh, ultimately, our you know our young people, our ambassadors, will be contributing towards whether it's you know building and standing up a program on the collegiate campus and or taking something. We have one use case of this, but also you know aligning with the local municipalities and identifying ways to sustain the programming in that in that sector. And that's going on up in Philly as so well. So where are you based, and who do you serve? Yep. So we're based in Atlanta, uh, and we serve a number of different communities through our HBCU reach. Of course, we have over 45 schools that are within our network. Ooh. 30 or so are actively participating from a gameplay perspective. Uh, the remaining are either going to be kind of onboarded in season four, which resumes when school starts about September, and or focus more on just the academic or curricular outcomes. Uh, outside of the 
collegiate reach. We also prioritize the feeder ecosystems that reach into those different uh, communities. So primarily the DMV is a major market for us, Philadelphia. Uh, the, the, I just learned recently that the DMV is not where I get my license reviewed. reviewed. <laughs> <I understand. laughs> yeah, so, uh, the DC or Delaware, Michigan, Virginia, sure. uh, Michigan, uh, Maryland, Virginia area is one of the key markets. Uh, we've also started programming in Rockford, right outside of Chicago. Um, of course, Atlanta, uh, the Charlotte, uh, North Carolina area, and then of course, uh, we actually have a program here in LA uh, oh, taking cool. place next week. Yeah. So. so, what happens? Does like a student hear about your program and they say, "I want to bring this to my school," and they contact you about being an ambassador, or are the schools contacting you? Are you contacting the schools? Like, I'm just uh, really, thinking in our yeah. listeners, like, who 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 gets in touch with you? Yeah, it's a combination. Primarily, it started off with us understanding esports is growing and the, our universities shouldn't miss out because the universities are missing out. That means our young people, our students are as well. So that's the primary way that we've engaged or gotten engaged with schools. Uh, but thinking through both at the collegiate and the uh, K-12 or high school level, we have had students say, you need to come to my school next. And so... What we love about that is more, more than likely those are their self-drivers, self-starters who understand or really just embody the mindset of, hey, I will have to help build this if I want it to exist, right? And so that's been great. And we've also paired that mindset up with, let's make sure you have someone on the ground as well from an advisor or staff perspective to support that. So we absolutely do encourage students and schools and to reach out and basically you know, inquire, hey, when are you coming to our school? And then we kind of respond back with the appropriate blueprint or how-to of, hey, if you don't have any infrastructure, at least get these uh, elements in order. You know, student student leader, advisor, staff, uh, faculty, and of course, having some type of literature that you can share to the larger administration for buy-in. So we give them that. And what are you seeing in terms of buy-in? Like, how, is, how's oh, the reception? Question. Yeah, Jennifer, I love these questions. So <laughs> buy-in has been definitely mixed. Um, you, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's think, a bummer. It is a bummer. And it's, it's, it's a slow, but steady process. Yeah. Cause course. I imagine some students can't find a mentor or can't find yes, a, very true. That. And even if they find a mentor, some school administrations are like, yeah, they, they kind of shrug it off. Like more games we don't need, but the thing is what they're missing out on, or I guess the mindset that isn't quite understood is again, the gaming is at the intersection of technology, entertainment, music, you know, you can kind of keep going. So with that. And sports. And I know sports, not physical yeah. sports, but team building, sportsmanship. hundred percent. Like talent management. The whole thing resembles sports. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I was recently talking to a phys ed teacher at a school who was like so mad that they made him include esports as part of his <laughs> curriculum. Really? And I really, I, I think I might've moved the needle a bit in talking to him. It's like, I get like everyone needs to move their body. Like I'm not saying that esports means you just live on a couch, yeah. but how about accessing everyone who's not going to be an athlete, a physical athlete, mm -hmm. they could still learn all the important things we learn through playing a sport in uh, in a in a domain that they actually have natural and gifted talent, or maybe they've been developing that talent for a long time, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. And I agree. Sports is definitely a big piece of it. And I think that's a part of the larger buy-in narrative that is missing of, I mean, chess is a sport, right? I mean, it's because of the competitive element, the structure that goes into practice and competition. And then, of course, you know, when you're talking about leaderboards, you, you want to think through the sub competitions that lead to the major competitions. So of course. really, we should just be positioning it as uh, it possess or it has 
the sports structure. But, you know, I, I definitely agree that impacts buy-in at large. Yeah. Do you feel in, so you've been doing this since the end of 2019, so a few mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Have you seen a shift yet? We have seen a shift. And okay. I was going back to like the half and half. We have some, you know, university leadership that's, when are we going to get this on our campus? And that's been the shift of understanding at two levels for the end user, for our students, for our ta- future talent. You know, I know professionals who are one year in and, you know, well past any entry-level corporate salary that you would expect, right, because of the technical skill set they possess. And so, of course, some leadership, the buy-in is we want our young people to have better economic opportunity, which, of course, is always gained with more technical skill sets, right? And then there's also still a buy-in or or there have been more uh, kind of indicators or evidence of buy-in from a top-down perspective, also when it's talking about the if you will, kind of skills and mindset that can be extracted from gameplay, right? To your point, or even some of the earlier pieces I mentioned, you know, gaming itself should be included into the sports mindset because of the teamwork, the communication, the practice, the time management. Those are all elements that have been recognized in small ways, but definitely are starting to be, uh, if you will, championed by more vocal leaders as well. Right. Okay. So I attended your panel earlier and one of the facts that um, was mentioned in the uh, panel was that there have been great progress and now they're 4% of the video game industry right. are people of color. Yeah. Or was it specifically black people or people of color? That was specifically, yeah, black people, African-Americans. Okay. Yeah, so that was, of course, when we started off, it was, I think, all BIPOC representation was still less than 15% a yeah. few years ago. Um, but yes, at the time, African-American representation was on 2%. Now it's 4%, which is great. That sounds like a very intentional effort is taking place. Yep. But then at large, you know, understanding out of $180 billion, that's only 4% from a participation in regards to full-time employment. That's not 4% ownership, 4% leadership positions. Sure. That's, you know, yeah, you cool. You're a junior uh, team member and we're counting you on that. So, of course, the data... And I'm glad, I'm so glad you're asking this as well. That is a huge North Star for us of what we're using as, is the work being done? Is it being realized? But also going back to the transferable skills mindset, we're helping our young people understand where are you adding value to? And ultimately with that mindset, you will not only know how to do your job, but you understand why you're doing your job and have the ability, should have the ability to speak to how your role or contributions are ultimately adding value to the whole product or the whole system itself. And so, yeah, definitely going to be a slow and steady process. But what we recognize is as we increase awareness and access into the space, let's make sure we also possess the ownership leadership mindset so that the real reason we're looking to increase the number from two to 4% is from, from, for economics, right? You know, going back to where this industry is expected to be by 2026, $320 billion is nothing to sneeze at. Yep. And so, you know, ownership is going to be a big key in regards to what economic kind of uh, indicators look like. So my question is, you said, so you're doing a lot of work with HBCUs, yeah. which obviously is your target population. Mm-hmm. Are you also bringing your programming into schools uh, that are more mixed race? Yeah. And how, 
How's the diversity of the participants playing out in those schools? Yeah. Um, so yes, to answer your question, um, at the collegiate level, uh, in a very limited manner. So we've done some programming with Ole Miss. We've done programming with Georgia State. Um, Maryland University is also on the, uh, the kind of like the next semester to do's as well. The diversity within those programs, because it's gaming, it has been more mixed, even, you know, based on Ole Miss, it has very, you know, it's just been kind of two populations in, you know, at that uh, university. Georgia State is probably one of the better representations of having still full diversity within programming. Uh, and what we've done at those schools was more of like a two-day type element. So it wasn't a full four-week sure. or 20-week program, but we did have good diversity there. Um, but how is it playing out? And that was the like if piece, there's yeah. such like a, if the industry as a whole is so lopsided, only 4% black representation. So now you're in a club after school and it's kind mm -hmm. of mixed race. Mm -hmm. Is it, is there anything about your programming that is like, especially supporting the black or people of color, the black students or the people of color, or is it just the nature of how you approach it is more inclusive? Yeah. Um, nothing that's as nuanced to address a specific demographic once we're in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but definitely using, if you will, and I could probably take that back because we use, you know, relevant examples for, you know, for understanding. I think I mentioned this earlier, the music comparison as it relates to the gaming industry is probably the biggest aha, which many people in black and brown communities understand and possess because of how much that is seen and shown from every perspective of, yes, the talent, yes, their business professional, the owners, you know, in the music industry, there's nothing, there's nothing new to have, you know, black executives at the highest level. But that's not the same case in the gaming industry. So we have seen, if you will, kind of it play out in a similar manner. Of course, we're using those types of comparisons to help build the buy-in and kind of and understanding of what Confidence, yeah. Confidence is a big piece. But what we've still seen is just certain skill sets within the, you know, our programming and even at large uh, roles that can be possessed kind of, uh, if you will, occupied by by specific you know demographics as well so even within a mixed room of say 30 students you'll get maybe a larger proportion of your black or black students or you know, diverse students that are focused on the music media side of gaming versus game development or versus esports so we've still seen what what you know is naturally what you'll gravitate towards yeah so we've been looking just to help build on that understanding so that what you're gravitating towards is still within your interests and not just within your comfort zone. Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I do have a spicy question te okay. teed up for you. Up? I feel like we've been talking long enough that you're kind of ready for it. Love it. So as you know, Film and Games is a studio that makes games for positive impact. Games for positive impact. So yeah. we make 2D video games, 3D video games. We do VR. We do everything. But always when we design a game, it's because we are tuning it to push towards a, a particular outcome. So a lot of times that outcome is the person learns something they haven't known before, yep. but they might be, they might feel something they haven't felt before. They might be inspired to do something they haven't done. So oh, that's, yeah. that's the world we live in. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because, you know, we, we fully support and love what's happening in esports, and especially esports at the collegiate and uh, K twelve levels. Especially programs like yours that doesn't only focus on having teams and competing, but really right. exposing kids to all the different careers. Absolutely. It is completely like mission aligned for us. <laughs> Our big question is when you 
set up these clubs and you kind of compete in sports, traditionally esports is played some from some amazing AAA games yep. that lends themselves so nicely. Rocket League, League of Legends, Overwatch, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Why don't or what's your hot take on why programs like yours don't necessarily incorporate educational games? Yes. That the game they compete in is educational. Or do you? Maybe I'm making assumptions that aren't true. Yeah, no, uh, not an assumption. And, and I say unfortunately because it is a part of just the reality of interest right now. But unfortunately, we haven't engaged in any educational games. We have done something similar in regards to helping students build their game, you know, development, game design, competency through social prompts as well. Oh, cool. I'm sure you're familiar with Games for Change. Yeah, so I just done... judged the student competition. Oh, yeah. Did nice. any of your students... Submit entries? Uh, possibly. I okay. actually couldn't even confirm or deny, but okay. I've done, I was a judge last year for student competition. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, um, and we've kind of taken, taken some of their concepts of understanding the social prompt really is a key driver for different people to engage into this. Yep. So that's something we have done, but yep. in regards to competing, I would say largely is interest, right? You right, because you have to hook them with the game they love. Absolutely. And but once they're in. Once they're in, that's that's a good opportunity. But, you know, when it comes to actual esports, you know, of course, this is even a realization for our students. It becomes now a sport. It becomes a dedication of yours and you have to practice and you have regimented elements that, and at the end of the day, would they create the same amount of effort or put forth the same amount of effort for an educational game? Oh, I can buy that. You okay. Know. Yeah. So it's, that's something that we It's are, just like a student who's like really interested in like football. And then you're right. like, well, why don't you try tennis? And they're like, no, I like, <laughs> I like football. Exactly. But we um, have looked at and started to identify what would be a great introduction to maybe more one-off, you know, competitions that would start to introduce that mindset as well. Part of my theory on this is there's a couple things that make an esport a great esport, right? Yeah. So it's, well, one of it is just the popularity because mm-hmm. people want to go watch a game that they play at. They're probably not as good at, but it's, it's aspirational. The same people, we people, watch same sports. reason why yeah. people like going to sports. It's like, hey, I played a little basketball, but this is amazing. Yeah. So I totally get that. I don't think we can fix that with educational games. Uh, part of it is it's fun to watch and fun to play. Yes. And the elements that make it fun to watch usually is it's real-time multiplayer. And there's, like, excitement in the game. And there's, you know, a lot of the eSport talent is about being having really fast reflexes. Mm -hmm. It's not about, like, having a nice two-minute thought about, you know, your next strategy. Although I would say chess maybe is a slower game or golf and people like those games. Um, So part of me is maybe there's just not... I'm trying really hard not to pimp our own game, which would be a perfect esports, by the way. But right. it's, I think there just hasn't been a plethora of multiplayer, fast-paced, educational yeah. games that are fun to watch and fun to play. Yeah, and to me, that sounds like an opportunity, especially for anyone listening. I have seen some great educational games that are are multiplayer. They're VR-based, um, but some of those have started to engage young people. You know, you're battling... Uh, you're battling the COVID-19 virus and you got to do it quicker than your teammates. And it's very cool. And it's, of course, educational because you are you have to uh, accumulate antibodies. And, and so it has a whole element that you definitely are going to be exposed to new information. And that's exciting. Yep. But, you know, at large, that was developed by someone who was very passionate to, to do it as well. So I think there probably will need to be a just as much of a shift in mindset for the developers and the people who can actually contribute towards the assets 
just right. as much as there would be to create consume the assets. Absolutely. To create like the perfect educational esports games. Cause I would, our game isn't out yet. Our mm-hmm. multiplayer game, it's a robotics game. It comes out in August, but, um, I, I have to assume too, is when you're hitting up those pools that have resistance to it, you could kind of also show, well, part of our programming is also doing that. Yeah. But yeah. that's neither here nor there. Okay. Well, you've actually helped me understand a little bit more why I just, because it is hard. You know, I think, what do you say to parents who are like, you know, I don't want my kids playing more video games. Yes. They're not doing their homework. They're not doing their chores. They're too lazy to get a job because all they do is play games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's something, you know, multiple multiple responses to the parent. Of course, too much of anything is not a good thing, right? So we always have to understand that after a certain point, there really isn't um, much of a benefit beyond just consuming, you know, getting more and more, you know, dopamine. That's going to be something that we have, you know, been aware of. And, of course, four hours is probably the longest you would want to communicate to a player that's, you know, doing this casually or even competitively at a time, right? So we definitely share more of the structure that we know is a best practice from a, hey, every so often, are you stretching? You know, gaming takes a lot of strain on your eyes and your digits. And so making sure that you're doing just appropriate exercises and or recovery for that is one piece. But also one thing that I've shared with parents that has been probably the most productive feedback is similar to how we wouldn't, you know, want our young people playing catch for multiple hours. If you're going to play football or baseball, Go participate in the sport, right? And so similarly, if you're going to play Call of Duty or Fortnite, I say challenge them like you would if they were playing a sport. How are, what are they improving in specifically? How much time are they spending on improving in that, right? So, in, you know, in any one of these games, Rocket League, for instance, if you have to get the ball on the goal, are you getting better? How do you know you're getting better? So asking questions that are more developmental in nature will not only let the young person know, wow, my parents care about something I care about, but then also it gives the parents a little bit of insight into, well, how serious are they? Because there are times where you'll see someone who's, I'm going to be invested, I'll do my homework so I can do the gameplay. And I've seen that where it works. It's a positive and perfect incentive. I've also seen where it's more of the students wanting to just engage with their friends. So that's really what they want. And so I've suggested, and I would love to get feedback on this, but Maybe just give your young people an environment to engage with their, you know, with their peers that doesn't include gameplay, right? And that makes mitigate some of the consistent hours within that space. But largely, I do kind of encourage parents to challenge their young people on how are you improving, in which ways are you improving, why, why, you know, asking the questions that you would ask as if you were interested and just wanted to learn more versus challenging the time spent in their ultimate return, right? right? So that's a just a, a I have similar shift. advice because I think a lot yeah. of the the relationships become confrontational. Yes, where it's yes. like I just don't want you to do it, and they're like, "Well, I want to do it," and you kind of realize, you know, the big surprise in when you're a parent and you have teenagers. Suddenly, they just stop listening to you, and you're like, "Well, what am I going to do about it?" And I'm like, "Well, I really don't have that many options." You yeah. know, like um, I always say, lean into it, mm-hmm. like just as if they were interested in something else. Yeah. Like, ask them about the game. What do they think? Watch it with them. If they like watching, like, Twitch streams, sit down. Yeah. And, like, try to watch it. Ask questions. Like, take an interest in what they're doing, just like if they were doing anything else. Agree. I love that, yeah. Um, I, I you know, was- and even if it's forward to you or not something you would you like, well, surprise. You probably didn't like the things that your parents liked either. <laughs> surprise. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I think when our young people, the kids see their parents 
asking and investing and sitting down and like, oh, wow, if this is something I'm going to spend the time in, I need to make that decision for myself because now I've you know gotten that support and you know that support can be taken elsewhere into other interests as well. So I think even the young people appreciate and kind of feel that difference as well. Yeah. Yeah. Great feedback. Do you miss being a junior IT tech guy? I almost still am. So, Oh, sure. Yeah. Startup <laughs> yeah. world. So when we, exactly. When we go to different events and activations, sometimes that's still a part of the process. Thankfully now we leverage our bright young minds. Some yes. of our students, uh, shout out to Jeremiah over at North Carolina A&T. He's been with us since our first three months in 2020. So he's been, you know, um, with us since he was in high school, now in college. So, um, thankfully we're able to leverage some of their input and insights in regards to the IT component, but yeah, it's still something I engage with regularly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love it. I mean, what was, I mean, you talked a little bit about this at the beginning lightly, but, um, and I know you guys started in 2019, but what, what, what was the motivation for you to find, found, found this organization with your friend and what keeps you going? Yeah. Oh man. Great. Second. I'm glad you asked that second piece as well. So early on, I would actually, you know, uh, credit my co-founder Ryan Johnson for a lot of the kind of sky is falling moment of, Hey, there's a, this is a billion dollar industry. You and me and all of our friends engaged, but we're not truly engaged. And so in 2020, excuse me, in 2019, I was actually helping and consulting people and building and forming nonprofits. And so that was something I've been doing after getting out of the Marine Corps and uh, really doing that full time in regards to helping both fund or excuse me, fundraise and then develop the organization is what I did. And workforce was something that really grasped my attention. At the time, I was just intending on helping someone set up an organization as I was doing. And were you doing that informally or as part of a job that you were in? Um, so that was, I was running my own consulting agency. Got so it. I started up when I kind of a little bit of back, background, got out of the Marine Corps, um, 2015, worked at State Farm Insurance for a few years, got into fundraising through my downtime. So I was volunteering at first and, you know, really understood that was a not just a salary opportunity, but a career perspective. So for me, it was a passion point to be able to help social organizations really impact their community. And so starting this whole thing was uh, a need of ours within our community of understanding the opportunity is really just uh, missing based on access and awareness. So for me, myself and my co-founder, that was what really got us to start. So what really engaged me in the space again was the workforce opportunity, understanding revenue within the industry means there's a lot of opportunity that we could be taking advantage of, but quite frankly, aren't yet. And so, you know, again, back to the music or gaming is bigger than music and film. I was like, oh, okay, so there is something here. And so in regards to how is it going and what's keeping us going, it's, it's going well, understanding one, you know, whether it's our work directly or indirectly impacting that 2% to 4%, that's always a, you know, kind of a, it's a good, you know, heartwarming feeling, but from our direct impact, we've had young people who have shared, they've already started contributing towards, you know, their economic future in a meaningful way, right? And what does that mean from a true use case perspective? What's kept us going is hearing, hey, if I didn't get in touch with you all back in 2020, I wouldn't be at uh, Bank of America where I am now in my computer engineering world. Because I was thinking about transferring out of my major and going to do 
I think the exact response was like kinesiology, right? Okay. So no, not to that, but they were like, I'm working at Bank of America making more than my parents. And I was like, hey, that's a great. So what keeps us going is really those opportunities we have, that, which was actually cool because that young man got hired and his peers within his school, this is at JCSU in Charlotte, one another got hired, but they all really saw what could happen and within a year time frame, and they're engaged as well. So what really the success stories of our young people and then the buy-in from a peer-to-peer interaction is just another reason to continue to support them so that they can be the, if you will, kind of the uh, the leader of their peers as well. Yeah. Ah, the ripple effect. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, it's happening. Uh, well, Jolene, you are a special person doing special things. We're going to wrap up. I sure. want to hear from you what you and your organization need. Mm-hmm. This is going out into the world, yeah. this this podcast. So what do you need to be successful? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's actually something I've been reflecting on probably since I've taken on the executive director role of we've we started off year one with great partnerships and brand awareness, you know, partnering with Verizon and Microsoft and Comcast. But what we recognize is still a lacking need is how do we sustain a lot of the infrastructure? First of all, how do we present in a uh properly provide, but then also sustain the infrastructure for engagement. And then going back to that earlier point, leadership and ownership within the space. And so creating more entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs within the ecosystem exist when you know you can provide resources at scale. And that means, hey, do you have access to professionals in the space? You have access to the tools from a software, from a hardware perspective to give you relevant insight into what leading companies are going to look for as well. And so in short, I I mentioned this earlier, but the community center is definitely on our five-year timeline of knowing we're in now over six markets, but, you know, our our students have to wait for us to either come back and or it's only available at their schools, right? And so we recognize what we need is to be able to build our own footprint that can be largely available from an incubation-type mindset to really give our young people the ability to build their and further contribute towards their runway. Right. Because right now they're being exposed. They're being equipped with the initial skill set. But we don't, in my opinion, have the appropriate resources to really sustain them as professionals of, hey, I've got my company started. Now I need to do this or I'm jumped into this career role. And to get to, you know, the next kind of promotion consideration, I need to have something underneath my belt. And a lot of times that takes resources, mentorship, insight. Uh, and that a lot of times can be you know provided with the incubator in short. So again, getting back to the fund that could support the different disciplines that we already have, if you will, a talent pool for is kind of the next stage of where we're looking for. Okay, cool. Well, if you are someone who is listening and can help Julian community uh, around these tasks, please reach out. His contact information will be in the podcast. Absolutely. Julian, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Great conference. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Filament Games podcast. If you like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and what's happening at our studio, subscribe today on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to visit us at our website, filamentgames.com.